Welcome to Office Hours, a social science podcast produced at the University of Minnesota, featuring conversations with prominent scholars, researchers, and other movers and shakers in the social world. This episode, we talk with Lucia Trimber about her excellent new book, Come Out Swinging, The Changing World of Boxing in Gleason's Gym. Lucia is an assistant professor of sociology at John Jay College, the City University of New York, and doctoral faculty in criminal justice at CUNY's Graduate Center. Her work has been featured in journals such as Qualitative Sociology, Ethnography, and the Journal of Sociology and Social Welfare. During our conversation, Lucia takes us inside the gym, discussing the shifting political economy of the boxing gym, the growing number of women practicing the sweet science, and the rise of white-collar clients. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. In Come Out Swinging, you discuss race, gender, class, economic shifts, and the increasingly neoliberal city. And you manage to do it all through analysis of a boxing gym. So perhaps we could start with you telling us about Gleason's gym, and also why a sociologist would choose it as a site to talk about these big, and to be honest, uh, complicated ideas. Sure. So I began research in 2001. Um, I have always been a boxing fan, but have felt very complicated about the racial and class history of the sport. And in 2001, I had to uh, pick a field site for a participant observation research class that I was taking in grad school. And at that time, I was following the sport fairly closely, and women had just started participating in professional boxing. And I was interested in how they were or were not integrating into the sport. And so I'd sort of been following them for maybe a couple of years or so, uh, really Mia St. John and Christy Martin uh, and the other women who were sort of making it onto undercards of big fights. So I decided that um, I wanted to pick a, a field site that I was interested in um, and also that would get me into New York because I was in New Haven at the time. So I decided to go to Gleason Gym. Um, a good friend of mine worked for Ring Magazine. Uh, he was an editor, and um, he had told me that the owner of Gleason's Gym had recently given a talk at Oxford University and um, was very open to academics and to academic research. So I decided that I would go to Gleason's to look at women's boxing and to really look at how they were participating in the sport and what some of their challenges were um, and what some of their accomplishments were. And really after my first day there, I realized that there was so much going on in the gym and that the gym was sort of this microcosm for a lot of the larger social and political and economic changes in New York City. So I'd say that I went in to study women's boxing and that really after about five hours, it expanded um, dramatically in sort of focus of study. And do you think this is common to other boxing gyms as well, or would you say that Gleason's is an exception or something different? I think that Gleason's was one of the first gyms, well, I know Gleason's was one of the first gyms to accept women and then um, to accept different types of more new new types of boxers. Um, I think that, that a lot of the changes that boxing has undergone in the past 20 years have, have happened earlier and more intensely at Gleason's. Now we do see women and other types of, of boxers at, at boxing gyms, at sort of standard boxing gyms. But I think that Gleason's is particular in that it's the oldest operational boxing gym in the country and has a lot of fame within the world of boxing. So that 
people tend to go there first and to go there in large numbers. But but certainly some of the trends that we see at Gleason's have trickled into other gyms. So for people who have never seen or been to a boxing gym, how big is a gym and how many people would actually be at a place like Gleason's? Sure. So the gym is about 14,000 square feet. Um, It's in a renovated warehouse in um, Dumbo, which is now a very affluent part of of Brooklyn. At at the time when Gleason's moved there, it wasn't. Um, The gym itself has not been renovated, but the the building is renovated. So it's got concrete floors and sort of grimy walls. Um, It has four four rings and a a thousand person membership, um, which, you know, is open really, really early in the morning till very late at night. So you get different periods of of intense activity and then other periods where there are fewer people in the gym. But um, there's about maybe about 600 boxers who are what we call white collar boxers. Um, There's about 200 women and then the rest are competitive amateur or professional boxers. Okay. Could you talk a little bit more about the different types of boxers? Sure, yeah. It's not um, who you find in a boxing gym today is not necessarily who you would have found in a boxing gym um, maybe even even 30 years ago. So uh, there are still amateur and professional boxers who um, you know have, have long populated boxing gyms such as Gleason's. Um, a lot of the amateur boxers are, are young men of color. Um, primarily from low-income neighborhoods uh, of Brooklyn, but also of Queens and, and of Manhattan. Um, they're, they're professional boxers, again, who you typically anticipate finding uh, in, a, in a boxing gym like Gleason's. And then there are two new groups um, who are newcomers to, to the world of boxing. Um, one is women, um, and as I said uh, before, they're, they're fairly large numbers now. Um, and then there is a group called white collar boxers or white collar clients who are wealthy um, white professional men um, who come to the gym to to train um, to be coached one on one by boxing trainers um, and they have their own sort of niche in the gym, so they fight in white collar leagues they have special um, competitions that are not amateur or not not professional fights they're they're uh white collar bouts um usually there's no winner or loser declared in those competitions um and they're also often called by both name and occupation when they compete so it'll say John Doe a neurologist from Boston so um unlike um other boxers they get their occupation um and then often location um, announced in the corners, and um, and they both get trophies um, at the end of the the round, um, and and often they fight for a shorter duration of a round than uh, an amateur or a professional bout. So so there's Gleason's has the classic amateur and professional boxer um, that contingents sort of always always been part of gym life, but um, over the past. Really, 25 years, large numbers of women and white-collar clients have 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 sort of made a, a place for themselves in in boxing gyms as well. Okay, so in the book, you spend a lot of time talking about all these groups. Do you mind if we just focus in and talk a bit about uh, the women in the gym and then also the growth of white-collar boxing? Sure, sure. So, where do the women come from who occupy the gym, and did you get a sense of what it is that that drew them to what would be conceived of as a traditionally masculine space? 
Yeah, so I was really interested in that question when I started my research. Um, what What is it about boxing that would be a draw for women? Um, this is probably one of the most masculine spaces historically um, and not an easy place to enter. Um, I mean, what you find when you go to Gleason's is that actually it is quite easy to enter it because the, the owner very much uh, has a priority of, of making women welcome at the gym. But it is an intimidating idea to sort of get past the sort of traditionally masculine realm. Did you get a sense that the motivation was more for economic reasons or was this something that I actually cared about, um, you know, the idea of opening up boxing to, to women? I think that it's both. Um, and I'm not sure which preceded which. Um, but I think, I mean, certainly women, um, the women of the gym come from um, largely middle class. It's, it's changing a bit. Um, I've been doing this, this project for 13 years, so it's changed a little bit over the, the, those uh, sort of early years when it was primarily middle class women. Now there are uh, working class women who are sort of finding a place for themselves. But, it, but it, in the beginning, it was really middle class and upper class women um, who were coming into the gym to sort of work on bodily empowerment, um, new forms of identity, um, new ways to sort of command control of their lives to com and by starting with their bodies. And so some have histories of, of forms of suffering, um, of trauma. Um, other women have, have, you know, less intense forms of, of, of um, in social injury, but, but still feel like they want to work on their confidence and, and on their body. So in the beginning, those women really were um, fairly, fairly well-to-do women or at least comfortable. So their memberships were attractive to, um, to the, the gym's management, to the, to the owner. Um, they had asked in the 80s, they had long asked to train at the gym. And at that time, the gym was owned by two people. And, and one of the owners said, absolutely not. And the way that the current owner got his partner to allow women to come into the gym um, was to say, financially, we just can't forfeit this possibility of an income. We absolutely need them. But over the years, that owner, Bruce Silverglade, has been tremendously supportive of of the sport for women and of women's integration into the sport. So I, I think it's, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a dual motivation. Mm -hmm. So what is the interaction like within the gym where you have women from, well, I guess a lot of them from a middle-class or upper-class background entering a space that is filled with people from a different racial and class background? Yeah. So it's a, it's a, it's a complicated political economy um, in the gym. And I think that there are moments of tremendous um, conviviality in which people really see each other and recognize each other, um, the humanity of, of each other and the aspirations of each other and work really hard to, um, to support each other. And then there are moments of class interest or um, racism, uh, sexism that, that fragment the community. So I think on the whole, there's a, a strong discourse for women um, that this is a place that women should be allowed to be and that um, women have the right to fight and that women have the right to train in peace, um, which means, you know, not being looked at as sexual objects and not being um, pestered for, you know, romantic um, relationships. Um, but what I found was that that's sort of one level and that when you look at the day-to-day -day interactions, there actually is a tremendous amount of 
judging of the women, um, of pursuing women, um, of sexualizing female athletes, and that female athletes have to work very, very hard to overcome some of the, the stereotypes that, that men in the gym have of them. Um, and there are moments, um, a fair number of moments in which male boxers would say, you know, they just don't belong here, or, you know, I know we should accept them, but they just, they're distracting, um, and they're frustrating. So on a, on the whole, you know, there is a sort of level that everybody understands that they should be accepting, but then, you know, you can have these individual ethnographic moments that belie that people have frustration and that they did sort of like this masculine domain where women weren't a part of it. Um, and as a result, women have to work very hard to get the approval of the men in the gym. From working hard to get the approval, was it working hard through training really intensely and, and sparring in a, in a very competitive manner? Or is it... That's the, that's the, yeah, that, that would definitely be the, the sort of overarching most important way to, to get, to earn respect from, you know, this sort of skeptical gym community um, would be that you absolutely have to train hard and you have to spar hard. Um, so it's, it's, it's athletic, but it's also social. So a woman who is um, too social will, will often get, um, depreciated or, or will get, um, will, will get called out for being a social butterfly in a way that men who spend 12 hours in the gym, you know, playing dominoes or joking or reading or, you know, spending time chatting, don't get, uh, don't get called out for, for, um, for being too social. So women, they can't flirt, they can't, um, they can't dress in certain ways. They really have to police their their sort of gender behaviors, their sort of gendered performances, um, a lot more rigidly than men do. Um, and that creates a dynamic by which men are always setting the standard for women's behavior in a way that doesn't happen in the reverse. So I think it's you know it, it is possible, and there are a number of women who feel very comfortable in the gym and who who earn respect. It's the the price of that respect is is fairly high. Um, and there are a number of women who don't understand that sort of semiotics coming into the gym and will often be joked about and mocked um, for, you know, wearing sweatpants that are too tight or a top that's too tight. I mean, it's just, it violates the gym's norms um, in a way that if, a, if a, a male boxer went around without a shirt on, nobody would comment. Mm -hmm. Are there boxing gyms that cater strictly to women? Yeah, there are. Yeah. So, you know, once once women's boxing became a, um, a, a once it became clear that, that women were going to be boxing in large numbers and had no intention of of leaving the sport um, and had every intention of, of finding a place in it. Um, there there are a few gyms that have popped up in, in Manhattan that that cater for women. Other gyms will have training times for only women. Um, and then other gyms will have almost a sort of income-based gym, which is that for middle-class and affluent people. Um, and in those cases, the, the, the primary goal is, is training and not competition. So they, they tend to have a different focus. I see. So most um, of the people in Gleason's at least considered competing for the women? For the women, yeah. So that's what's sort of interesting about the women is that they come in to train, um, but because their motivations um, shape their training in that, you know, they come in to create these new forms of identity and to, to gain control over their bodies and their lives. Um, they tend to tend to do very rigorous training and it's not a far step for them to start 
competing. So they, they often, sparring is often the sort of critical moment where they say, well, you know, I'm doing this. Why don't I just get in the ring in the spar? And then they do really well in the spar and they say, well, why don't I compete? So there are far more middle-class women that go into competition than their male part, counterparts who would, who would then go and become white-collar clients. So it seems like the act of sparring and the, uh, of being hit and hitting seems further outside the class and gendered expectations for a lot of the women in the gym is there do people have trouble do women have trouble making that step or is or is there a lot of discussion of that moment yeah there is that's a it's a really good question it's sort of the heart of of a lot of women's early experiences training um and they do uh, over my time my course of my four years at, at gleason's um i i saw lots of ambivalence about um hitting other people um and initiating violent confrontation, whereas um, receiving it or having somebody else be offensive and being defensive was a much more comfortable position. So there are a lot of ways in which women sort of seek to get the permission from their sparring partner to hit. Um, often a sparring partner will say, you hit me, hit me, you can hit me, it's okay. Um, or women will talk in the locker room and say, like, okay, when we fight today, like, or when we spar today, you know, you, you can you can hit me, it's okay. Um, but it takes it often takes women a lot longer to get used to being comfortable with with sort of netting out physical aggression um, than than it does to their their male counterparts. There are just so many sort of gendered inhibitions about being violent and about being what looks impulsive or, you know, women would say, I'm so afraid of looking out of control or of killing people. And they have an anxiety about really harming an opponent in a way that just wasn't voiced by my male participants. So it wasn't, you know, whether or not those men have those, you know, those fears that they might, but it's not part of their discourse in in boxing in a way that it's very, very open with women. Okay. Let's, let's talk a little bit more about the men in the study. Sure. It, It seems like, white collar boxing has become this really essential part of the gym, at least in the, the economic aspect, but yeah. it, I don't hear much about it. Yeah. So you, could you say a little bit more about what the motivation is for the affluent men who are heading into the gym? Sure. So I think that, I mean, I think one thing to, to point out is that there have always been these sort of group called recreational boxers who have, have been, you know, maybe a handful of people in boxing gyms and Ernest Hemingway boxed and uh, Miles Davis boxed. So, so there are people who have frequented boxing gyms and might not necessarily have a goal of competition. But in the 1980s, um, a group of uh, trainers, both at Gleason's and at, a, at, another, at another gym called Gramercy, um, trainers cultivated a number of men who were coming into the gym asking to be trained. And these were businessmen, they were lawyers, they were doctors, um, and probably had very little interest in in competing but wanted to train. And out of this um, became what they call a a white-collar boxing league. And um, it's been immensely important to Gleason's, um, because like I mentioned before, it's, it's, they're, they're a very significant 60 to 65% of the gym's membership are these white collar clients. Um, and they, they keep the gym afloat, um, because their memberships are, uh, dependable. They're, they're monthly, they're regular, and they, they are, are really res- largely responsible for the, the gym's survival. So that's their sort of how they, how they function at the level of the gym and keeping the gym 
operating. But within the gym community, they have uh, a, a complicated role in the political economy of the gym, which is that they hire trainers who are primarily um, black and Latino men, um, middle-aged men, um, to train them. And they pay fairly well for their training sessions which has allowed this group of men um, who, who largely were employed in manufacturing when there was manufacturing and had a hard time finding positions of, of similar compensation in the service sector. They've allowed those men to really eke out a, a living um, from the gym full time. So for the first time, or one of the first times, we see that large groups of, at least since there's 80 trainers, can make their livings entirely from income earned in the gym. And this is, is largely due to, uh, to white collar clients pay, paying these men to, to train them. What that allows boxing trainers to do is to work with amateurs who, as I write in the book, um, tend to be low income men of color, um, many of whom are, have spent time in prison and um, really struggle to find work. To, to work with those amateurs who a lot of trainers will say is really their passion, is, is, those, is building those relationships. So in a, in a strange way, there's a sort of subsidizing of, there's different types of work that go on in the gym. There's this sort of traditional econo uh, economic transaction between the, the trainer and the white collar client that then allows the trainer to stay in the gym full time so that the, gym, the trainer can train amateurs um, who don't who aren't able to pay their trainers for, for their training. Um, so they're, they're, a, they're an interesting group. You know, they will say that they um, come into the gym to box after they've tried a number of um, high-intensity, high high-risk sports. Um, they look for thrills. They really look for their body to be pushed. Um, I think that, you know, they are... Uh, a group of people who, you know, we've sort of seen a rise of a fitness, of urban fitness and a, a fitness economy um, in the 80s and 90s um, and, and 2000s. Um, and they're, they're really um, beneficiaries of that trend or, or I guess consumers of that trend um, and take spending time on their body uh, very, very seriously and will pay handsomely to do that. Um, and they say that they feel emasculated by their wealth um, and that their office jobs don't give them the sort of physical vigor that they feel that they should have and that they feel like they need to defend themselves and, um, and really seek to do that through the conduit of this trainer. Um, they want, particularly men of color, they will say that they want black men to, you know, sort of challenge them and to, um, to learn this sort of fighting art from, from, from men in this in this really overwhelmingly masculine space. Did you get a sense of of what it is or why they seek out people of particularly of a lower class or or, or men of color? Right. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I I I think that there is um, an investment in black masculinity as being the most masculine and being um, the sort of pillar of, um, of physicality and, um, you know, in quite racist ways um, that they locate uh, these ideas of, of masculine dominance in, um, in, in 
in in black masculinity and 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 then the trainers become the 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 arbiters of that of that black masculinity um and so you know one of the people who i talked to said you know I was afraid to go to Bed-Stuy, but here I get to be beat up men from Bed-Stuy, and that's that's a thrill. Um, so I think that they they make men of color the sort of um, the symbols of of what is truly masculine, and then come into the gym to defeat those same sort of represent representatives of of masculinity. What are the interactions like in the gym? Do the white collar boxers? train alongside some of the amateur and professional boxers or talk to them, or is it more that they just get their private lessons? No, there's a tremendous amount. In Gleason's, it's very hard to have your own little space. So you you are training along everybody else. You're training along uh, people on the same heavy bags, um, in the same rings, uh, on the same, uh, in front of the same mirrors when you shadow box. Um, there's a tremendous amount of, of, of interaction. People are in the gym are friendly and often want to know what you're up to and who you are and take a great social interest in, in, in new people. Um, in particular, that one, one sort of place of contact is that um, amateur boxers will often be asked by their trainers to spar with white-collar clients to give them a workout. Um, and that's, that tends to be a place where amateurs meet white collar boxers and learn more about them. And, and sometimes relationships get forged such that amateur boxers can get jobs in the companies um, that white collar clients own or um, in, in their businesses, you know, not, not as, as top executives, but as, as security guards or in other low level positions, but they get um, access to jobs that they probably wouldn't have access to if they if they applied without without a connection through these continuous interactions did the white collar boxers ever move past those uh, i guess exotic representations of blackness to some other uh more i don't know some deeper connection i think that i mean i think it's it's really a, a motivator and um and, and how, how explicitly racialized it is falls along a spectrum. And certainly there were moments of, of, of mutual um, interest and mutual recognition. Um, I think that over time, people can often break down um, preconceptions about individual people. I, I, uh, I, I wish that there had been more breaking down of people's conceptions of groups so that you know maybe maybe this amateur is 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 um is somebody who you who you recognize and can see his humanity now whether you they they can translate that to a larger group of of young black men i'm I'm not sure um so I think that there tended to be some some friendships that developed and so, or maybe I'd say relationships that developed um within sort of small groups of people but but never really across largely across racial lines or, or class lines in a way that I think it, it's possible that in other sports that does happen. I was wondering if we could finish with a, a bit of a, a more abstract or maybe difficult question that I've had for a little while. Mm-hmm. So boxing has long fascinated lots of writers, intellectuals, and scholars, and people that aren't always associated with sports or boxing. So you have uh, like Norman Mailer wrote about Ali and Frazier, um, Joyce Carol Oates wrote about Mike Tyson, and then uh, Willie Quacant has his somewhat famous sociological inquiry into boxing in inner city Chicago. So what is it about boxing that continues to attract yeah. the attention of well-known writers and scholars like yourself 
who aren't interested in writing about other sports like basketball or football. Right. Yeah, that's a, I think that's a that's a really great question. Um I think that there's something about fighting uh, about the act of a fight um that is so brutal and so um powerful that when you witness it you really wonder what you're watching and what is going on that leads two men, two women um into a ring to fight, you know, so nakedly. Um, and certainly for me, I, I was really interested in the, the sort of social circumstances that led people to having that be an option, whether that was the only option or that was the best option. And I think other writers like Joyce Carol Oates and Norma Mailer and, um, and, and Louise LeClant also find some power in, in the fight and the idea of a fight and the idea of two people, I mean, historically, largely men, who are in a ring and who are who are fighting for a living um and you know so many people struggle to make a living um and this is a really like sort of sh- thrown into the sharpest relief the most challenging way to make a living and the most brutal way to make a living and i think that really raises a ton of questions about what what our society offers people as ways to to make a living and and ways to find meaning um ways to find identity ways to receive recognition from others to achieve social status i think that when when you watch people fighting it out hand to hand in a ring something something really um provocative gets triggered as to you know what are we as a society that this is a possibility and that people find meaning in this way and and what what does it say about roots of meaning about ways that people find meaning and and what does it say about our society that people find meaning in this way so for me i i think i found the gym interesting because um there were so many ways that you could trace what was happening in the gym and the way that people talked about their work in the gym, their training in the gym, to outside phenomenon, um, to post-industrial changes, to neoliberal changes. And I was interested in how those changes were reflected in the gym and then modified in the gym so that people could resist post-industrial changes within the gym. Um, so I think I think boxing really shows that in the most intense way possible. I, I mean, I keep thinking about the word naked in the most nakedly way possible because people are wearing so few clothes in the ring, whether they're men or women, um, that there's just something about it just being you and just being your hands and, you know, will to survive and to, to undergo some of the most grueling training and then the most grueling sort of competitive practices that, that there are in, are in sports, you know, maybe with the exception of, um, of football, but, but certainly the amount of, of damage and of violence inflicted is 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 pretty staggering. So it it makes you sort of stop and question what is what is going on here, um, and not as much now. But um, you know, it used to be that big fights were watched by large cross sections of of the country and um, by by lots of different people and and religiously. So you know. I think it made me think what what is going on in the sport that so many people watch it and are invested and care and then what is it about the people who undertake these practices that give them some sense of self that they that they climb back into the ring for the next fight well thank you for joining us and sharing your research i really appreciate it oh thank you so much for having me